A lot of my friends have mentioned how important it is for them to have subtle routines breaking up their day, markers to keep time and create normalcy. A common marker for many of them has been a drink. Once work is done, they pour a cocktail or open a beer, or for those who don't drink, maybe it's having an edible or brewing an evening pot of coffee. Let's their internal clock know that it's time to stop working and time to move into the evening. Whatever your poison, it serves as something much more important than it once was. It not only breaks up our day, but it lets us relax. It comforts us. It eases us into an emotional equilibrium while we cope with the pandemic fallback. What previously we might have figuratively called our poison has now become our elixir. The word elixir is defined as a magical or medicinal potion, or a particular type of medicinal solution. It comes from an ancient Greek word for dry, which then became an Arabic Greek word, meaning powder for drying wounds, and then Latin elixir. Eventually, it became a medicinal term in the 16th century, but long before its standard medicinal association, it inspired the myth of the elixir of life. Birthed in ancient China or India, it's still unclear which, the elixir of life is a mythical potion that is said to grant the drinker with eternal life or eternal youth. We still see this symbol in popular media today, as it is synonymous with the Philosopher's Stone, as in Harry Potter, and under other names in Doctor Who, House of Anubis, Full Metal Alchemist, the list goes on. At present, whatever we deem to be our own elixir, it gives us some subconscious psychological sense of immortality, that everything will be okay, and we'll continue to watch the sun rise and fall each day forever, observing the comings and goings of highs and lows, joys and crises. Of course, each of us knows that we're mortal, that we're fragile and temporary, but a fixation on death is perhaps a waste of life. Our elixirs remind us of that. And in this way, if but for short moments, we do live forever. All of the vices I've mentioned thus far fit in almost too well with Taurus season, which we're in now. Of them, I'm drawn to the one that may be the most Taurian of all. I've brought in a close friend of mine to discuss wine. I am Zoe Wilkins, and I'm a psalm at a restaurant in New York. Zoe is a veteran sommelier who has studied under industry legends Kat Saleri and Paul Greco. She currently works at internationally recognized wine bar Terroir Tribeca in Manhattan. I got into wine kind of by accident. I had always wanted to open a restaurant even when I was a little kid. I used to draw little pictures of these like uh, farm restaurants when I was a small child and they were like little grid shapes. Um, with a little house in the middle that was the restaurant and like little farm fields around the outside that I grew different things in. I like invented farm to table when I was like five basically and just like didn't know what it was, um, which is definitely because I grew up in a farming family, but whatever. And then at some point in my like mid twenties, I decided I was gonna pursue restaurant ownership as a career. So I looked for restaurant management jobs and I just got really, really lucky. 
and ended up working for this company. Uh, it's the Barbara Lynch Grupo. Barbara Lynch is the chef. Uh, and the wine director for the company is this woman, Kat Saliri, who is, I could talk about her for hours. She's amazing. I can't sum her up in one sentence, but I will say at the beginning of every summer, Kat does this thing called uh, the Festival of Scarves, and she brings a million pink scarves in various fabrics to all the restaurants. And you have to wear them and like touch them. And like, they're just kind of like this like beautiful festival of color. And it's to introduce pink wine for the beginning of the season. Um, she's very much about like the metaphorical of wine and like feeling something rather than knowing it necessarily. So we all studied under her, but mostly we learned how to be like captivated by wine and how to find it special and magical. And Kat always said that like, you want to go for someone's heart, not for someone's head when you're trying to sell them wine. And I was so taken with her and it, it just changed my life to work for someone who thought about wine in this like incredibly spiritual way. I'm a casual drinker of wine. I know some basic info. I can generally make my way around when a wine is like sweet versus dry and what kind of like general foods they may pair with, but I don't really know much. Uh, I guess like because I like to speak in analogies, if wine was a like we'll say a, a swimming pool, I would say that I'm comfortable like staying afloat in it. I could like float around and enjoy myself, but I like wouldn't drown, but I wouldn't necessarily be able to swim. Um, wine is more experiential for me. It's like a beautiful, mystical, elegant thing in human life. And it's it's almost like a character of its own in mythology. It like acts like a living, breathing character. It feels like one of the most human objects in the world. Um, one of the most like human of objects that have been invented by humans. And it carries this timelessness with it. It's carried this symbolism and presence with it on like the tabletop, for example, that feels like it's like its presence on the tabletop has maybe been unchanged throughout the centuries. And for all these reasons, I really love wine, although I have no I have no choice but to maintain my status as a consumer. Um, you, on the other hand, have a wealth of knowledge in the wine world. You're a psalm, you work in the wine industry, and you're passionate about it to the point that you even broke a decade or two of veganism in order to dedicate yourself more fully to the ways in which wine and food interact. What can you say about the social dynamics between these two positions, the consumer and the connoisseur, we'll say? I think the most important thing to consider is that those boundaries are fairly arbitrary. Um, for me, the wine connoisseur, like someone who knows a lot about wine, someone who's studying wine, someone who dedicates their life to it is just there to enhance the experience for someone who doesn't. I think a little bit of knowledge goes a long way if you're saying that you're kind of like in the very shallow end of like paddling in a swimming pool of wine knowledge. Like I'm not Michael Phelps and that's because Wine is a constantly evolving thing. Every vintage is different. There are new wine regions being discovered, being planted, being cultivated at all times. We go back to ancient methods. We move forward into modern inventions. Things change in the wine world constantly. And that's what I love about it is it's insanely reflexive. Um, and so my job is never done. I never know everything and I never will. It's impossible. Um, so I don't think about it as collecting knowledge so much as taking all the knowledge that I have learned so far and handing it back to someone. My job is just to find out what you know about your tastes, your interests, your likes, what makes you feel joy, and to find a bottle of wine that will give you that experience. We've talked about wine before, and you previously mentioned to me this concept of demystifying wine. That seems to be a popular idea among wine connoisseurs, we'll say, right? What can you say about that? 
demystifying wine is kind of this like heavy movement right now where there are a lot of books being written and a lot of them by people that I deeply respect while I might not agree with them that are basically built to teach people enough about wine to navigate a wine shop or to navigate a wine list. There are a lot of BuzzFeed articles, et cetera, out there that are, you know, four quick tips to help you pick a wine bottle in a menu. And for me, that's not really the point of wine. That's so far from it. The wines are always mystical, even to people who study them. Uh, Like I said, every vintage changes a wine, every you know, every rainfall changes a wine, every sunny day, every cold season, a change in who's handling the wine every day, you know, as a father passes and hands it down to his children, all of those things change a wine every single day. And I think that demystifying wine kind of, it lends to an air of like, it's it's disrespectful to the wine, basically, to think that you can just learn a couple quick tips and understand it. I feel like I'm in awe of wine every day, and I've been studying for close to a decade. It's a really beautiful, special thing, and it cannot be easily understood. And that's not to say it's meant to be austere or scary to people. I just want people to like dive into the idea that you don't understand it rather than trying to like act like you do understand it. So really the idea here is if you don't fully understand wine, that's okay. It's a complex thing to understand. And it's, it's totally okay to stay in your lane and just kind of accept that and accept help from people who might know a little bit more about it rather than learning a few quick tips and trying to you know show off or something in front of people. Right. I just want people to have fun with wine and to think about it as something that's experimental. Like for me, wine is a gamble. Every time you pay $20 at a wine shop for a bottle, it's a gamble because maybe you get home and you hate it. Maybe you get home and you absolutely love it and it changes your whole day. It changes your month. It changes your life. You never know. But Mm -hmm. I don't think we should treat wine as if it's something that can just be understood in concrete terms. It is bigger and more special and more vast and more unique than anything that like any one human could fully understand. We've talked about this before and there's a similarity between wine and astrology that I particularly love. And uh, let me say the bit about astrology first and you bring in how it's similar to wine, where my astrology teacher, John Green, one of the most valuable things of, of all the valuable things he shared with me, one that I will remember for the rest of my life, is he said, you can't just read a book on a planet, for example, on, we'll say, Jupiter, and then assume that you understand Jupiter, because that's just that author's perspective on Jupiter. And it's actually, there are, you know, thousands of interpretations for what any single thing in astrology really represents. I mean, it may all touch on some similar center, but it really is just kind of different landscapes for different authors. So it really is more appropriate to ingest as much as you can about everything in astrology so you can kind of form your own opinion. Eventually, at the end of the day, you're just synthesizing your education into something that makes sense for you. And in that way, it becomes unique what you're sharing with the world. So I feel like the real, the strong takeaway, the core of what's similar about astrology and wine is that idea that there's no way you can learn it from one book. There are so many moving pieces that it's just not possible to learn from a text. Even the most beautiful text, you know, World Atlas of Wine, Jan Robinson and Hugh Johnson. These books are not equipped uh, to give you the same knowledge as just like putting your nose into a glass and, you know, feeling out what a wine is and understanding its presence in the world. And I think that astrology is very much the same way where like, I don't think you could just read someone's book about 
anything in astrology and suddenly understand it. I think you have to be like looking at people's charts and you have to be thinking about it. And you have to be making connections on your own. And the texts are helpful, but they're definitely not everything. It's just too big and too mobile to be to be caught that way. Yeah, book learning and astrology is, uh, I mean, I did it for six years before I tried to really read charts because I was afraid that I wouldn't be able to do it right. And I hit a point where I was like, okay, I just spent six years reading. I have to try. And when I tried, I, I could understand every single thing in the chart independently, but doing it all together was something a book could never have taught me. Yeah. So I, yeah, you just have to learn by doing. Um, of course, you can't taste a wine that a book is explaining to you. I think something that's really really important especially for novice wine drinkers to hear is that there are no incorrect tasting notes um and i have made exceptions to that in my career i have heard people say some truly wild things but for the most part there are no wrong tasting notes uh everything that you taste in a wine is a taste memory so if you taste strawberries in a wine it's obviously because you've had strawberries before you couldn't possibly taste that if you've never had them before and some wine notes are so esoteric like you'll get things like uh, a really common loire valley white note is beeswax or lanolin so lanolin is something <laughs> most people have never been in contact with um i've never people... even heard of it <laughs> yeah it's um it's like what keeps a sheep's fur uh waterproof it's like they use it in skincare <laughs> and people a... will taste that in wine so lanolin is like a texture that you feel in wine that's why i said or beeswax because beeswax is definitely a, a slightly more obvious one but still how many people have like touched real beeswax and smelled it and maybe put it in their mouth you know as a psalm, like, we're constantly licking things like rocks and, like, smelling soil and, you know, like, crushing things in our faces and sniffing them. But I, I don't think most people do that. And so tasting notes just are what they are. And if you've had, you know, this dish and it smells exactly like this wine, then you got to go for it. And you got to say that because it can't possibly be wrong. You know, I often think that Canary Islands wines smell like barbecue chips and I get kind of snooted at by fancier psalms because that's not a, you know, correct tasting note, but they smell like barbecue chips and I'm not wrong. I could go on and on in all the ways that wine is deeply Taurian to me in, in my understanding of Taurus, but I did not expect that it was, it went as deep as psalms out there licking rocks, <laughs> just, just even more deeply Taurus. <laughs> What are some interesting tidbits or trivia that you can share that the average wine consumer might not know? My favorite quick tips for like kind of getting yourself a level or two up in your wine knowledge are all super easy. You can practice them at home. Um, definitely the first one is how to hold your glass. Um, if you want to just like look like a wine professional, it's really important that you get a stemmed glass and you hold it from your stem. And it's not just to look like a wine professional, uh, your hand temperature affects the temperature of your wine drastically because it's in very thin glass. And so people hold stems super low to avoid kind of manipulating the temperature of the wine. The more that you drink wine, the more that you think about it, the more you'll learn that temperature has a huge play. Even after, you know, after the wine's been bottled, uh, the temperature you drink a wine at is really, really important. So once you get it into a glass at a perfect temperature, you really want to avoid changing that temperature at all. And the, the easiest thing you can do is just hold your hand slightly differently than you're used to holding it. So do you have any tips and tricks or recommendations for enjoying wine while we're all quarantining? You know, I, I get that it's super overwhelming for people to try to get wine delivered or to try to make these kind of like rush stops where they're wearing masks and gloves and like trying to quickly find things they want to take home. 
And there are definitely like really, really easy ways to tell immediately if you like a wine. The first one is definitely next time you drink a wine that you really like, uh, flip the label over so you're looking at the back and find the importer. Um, so wine importers always have some kind of ethos and finding an importer that you like means that like you're not gonna like every wine they bring in, but you are much more likely to like their wine. So if you're a super natural wine drinker, you are probably gonna flip your label over and see that you're bringing in a Jenny and Francois wine. If you love the Loire Valley, you love Cab Franc, you love Chenin, you're probably gonna flip your label over and it's Louis Dresner. So the more that you learn about like what your label says and which producers or which importers you really like, the more you're gonna understand what bottles you should get next. If you love Red Spot In by Louis Dresner, it probably means they are mostly Cab Franc, they are a little bit Pinot, and they're all from the Loire. And like, that's super easy to go and find those things again. I think there's a lot of guilt around buying boxed wine, but I know, you know, everybody's still doing it because of quarantine. What can you say about boxed wine? Oh my God, yes. I was like profoundly hoping this was gonna come up. Um, boxed wine is super good for the environment. Um, super chill and cheap and easy for the producer making the wine. And I like cannot stress enough, winemakers have just an insanely hard job. They just work so hard. It's so brutal. Very few of them make very much money. And we love anything that makes a winemaker's life easier. Boxed wine is massively one of those things. Um, please buy boxed wine. Please don't buy like Yellowtail. Um, boxed wines, for the most part, still, even though we're definitely getting some good ones, are disgusting. And the vineyards that they come from are full of, you know, dead rats. They're, none of them are hand-picked, so you're definitely getting, like, dead animals in your wine. Uh, they are massively chemically manipulated Whoa. for color, uh, for flavor. Don't trust anything that is, like, massively produced. But I definitely, I buy box wine in COVID. Uh, Joe and I have had perpetually in our fridge for the entirety of COVID this Gamay Pinot blend that comes in a box from a producer called Harrison, who makes like a basically a burgundy Gamay Pinot blend and it's gorgeous and I love it because it's super environmentally friendly and it's super super affordable and it's super tasty we just keep it in our fridge and whenever one of us wants like a half glass of wine it's right there please buy box wine but like please do a little research first and make sure you're not like also destroying the planet. Just stay away from like the giant houses. I'm talking like Kendall Jackson. For the most part, everything else is okay. Mm -hmm. And yeah, if you want a little more bang for your buck, the best thing you can do is pick a country like New Zealand or like Hungary or whatever, something that's a little bit, you know, not France or Italy basically, and try a wine from there. There are wines stylistically made in each of those countries and in many others that are very similar to the things that we classically love to drink. And it's just a question of kind of like moving your boundaries a little further out and trying something new. Also, if you want to try a new wine, Zoe and I were discussing how um, Ashton Kutcher and Mila Kunis actually just announced that, that they're teaming up with Knocking Point Wines. They created something called the Quarantine Pinot Noir. It comes in a pack of two. It's $50 for two bottles of this Pinot Noir, and 100% of the profit goes to a bunch of different places. It goes to something called Give Directly, which gives cash grants directly to families um, in areas hit by COVID, um, direct relief by providing medical equipment, and the Frontline Responders Fund, which uh, provides for ventilators and medical facilities, as well as America's Food Fund. There's a, it, it's a collaboration between Feeding America and World Central Kitchen. Neither Zoe or I have had it. I have ordered it. I'm not sure if it's going to be good or not. Uh, I'm not sure that I would even be able to tell um, anyway. But 
uh, it's just great that you can kind of try out a new wine, have it shipped straight to your house, and it completely 100% goes to, you know, places that that money needs to go. I kind of feel like we're at a very important crossroads right now, and we have been for a couple years, and I feel like it's building where wine is kind of coming back into vogue. Um, And I don't think it's becoming cool again. I don't think wine ever stopped being cool, but I think it's becoming really accessible. You know, so you have people from all walks of life making wine right now. You have people from all walks of life selling wine. You know, 10 years ago, the way that I look, like having pink hair, having tattoos, being a girl altogether has been kind of a little bit taboo in the wine world for its entirety. And it's really, really pleasant to watch the psalm world open up um, and become less of kind of this super rich boys club, but it's even more inspiring and even more pleasant and more magical to watch the consumer world open up. The whole thing is blowing wide open right now and allowing this like space for people to explore more than just, you know, Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blanc, Cap Sauve. Yeah, I'm not in favor of demystifying wine. It's magical and special, but I'm definitely in favor of the idea of more people contributing their thoughts to it and trying more wines and getting out there and learning about grapes that they've never had before and learning about regions they've never tasted before and just like jumping off the deep end into this like incredibly special magical little beverage. Zoe and I met in school in 2008. She's always been highly intellectual and sensual, so it feels so fitting that she's immersed herself in the world of wine. Her Venus is in Taurus, on the IC, showing how deep her love goes of all things sensory. Her Lilith is in Sagittarius, in the 11th house, showing someone who uses the elegance, femininity, and international essence of wine as a way to interact with the masses. I also want to take a really quick look at the charts of Ashton Kutcher and Mila Kunis. Ashton's moon and Venus are conjunct the midheaven and Aquarius, with a Taurus-ruled 11th house. And Mila's moon is in Scorpio in the 12th house, with Lilith and Aquarius in the 3rd. Here we see that they share a passion for wine and social progress. You can get your bottles of their quarantine Pinot Noir at knockingpointwines.com slash product slash quarantine. And that's knocking, N-O-C-K-I-N-G. Thank you to Zoe Wilkins for sitting down with me. For the duration of quarantine, she's offering remote sommelier services, wine recommendations, local delivery, and classes via email and Zoom. Check out zoe.wine to get started. That's Z-O-E dot wine. For more Inkblot Astrology content, you can follow along at inkblotastrology.com or on social media at inkblot underscore astro. Sign up for the Inkblot Patreon at patreon.com slash inkblotastrology to be included in the next batch of personalized astro postcards. My usual vices don't always work in these times, but sometimes they do. Often for me, it's as simple as pouring a glass of wine. To hold a thing, to really look at it, lose yourself in it, consume it, it does something. It creates a sense of wholeness, an excitement, a fixation. But if your vice is hard to find, 
or it just isn't doing it. If you haven't yet found that elixir of life, you can always explore the dark.